0: Hey, J. Crew, the book of life has been closed for a whole nother year. A whole nother, as they say. So we might as well swear a little. You know, we've got time. We're not going to make it all year, so you might as well start swearing now. So this has been your obscenity warning.
1: You guys, I have to get sinus surgery.
0: You do, Isn't really? That's
1: effed up, yeah.
0: That is effed Ooh.
1: up. Is that cover for an. <laughs> Oh, sorry, I is do. that a deviated septum? No, I have a deviated septum. He's like, but it has nothing to do with your problems. And I'm like, that's like pretty bittersweet to find out now. That's right.
0: Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I just like sinus problems, eh? Deviated septum?
1: No, literally.
0: Hello, J-Crew. This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week by Tablet senior writer Liel Leibovitz. Hello, hello. And deputy editor Stephanie Button. Hi, hello. And our Jew of the week. This is, guys. It's a good week. It's a good week. Our Jew of the week is former Obama speechwriter David Lit, who was kind of responsible for a lot of the jokes in Obama's speeches, and basically for anything Jewish. That was like his his niche. Uh, our Gentile of the week is Russia expert uh, Tom Nichols, who's going to uh, to talk to us about you know how to save the world. Um, so it's going to be a great great show. But but first. Um, I don't know what's up. Anything anything going on with you guys?
1: I mean, I spent the day yesterday with my my little my little nephew Noah who is just like the cutest person in the entire world. And he's, like about three months months. and he's like five months. He's like five months. months. So he's like a five real months. person, and he just like looks at you and laughs and does this like crooked half smile. And I'm like, oh, you are going to be dangerous <laughs> one day.
2: The sort of like, how you doing? But it's hard because I was, doing?
1: I was, we were walking, and I, my sister was holding her dog on a leash, and I was hold, steering the stroller. And it is <laughs> you
0: like, were holding the baby on a leash. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I was having a lot of trouble like navigating. this. Strollers are big. Like we, we went into a store and I was like, wow, these aisles are just not baby friendly. Like, and I have s- to ask, yeah, <laughs>
0: I, I have to ask. Do you? No, you're probably not in the stroller conversation yet, nor should you be. You're, and I think we all
1: should should get out of the stroller conversation. Right, but would, is your I'm, sister a politely but firmly request?
0: Are you like? Has there been stroller? Con- you know, are you aware of what brand she has? I remember it being a
1: thing that she like. I, I remember hearing it. There was some spreadsheet that her friends all share, like one, that, like all the products they use, and then they all add to it. So to me, Ooh. that's like, well, that's like all like the Harvard Law School moms now.
0: Wait, is it actually the list? It's not like an Upper East Side thing. It's not a particular shul. It's, it's the, the the organizing principle of this shared Google spreadsheet is Harvard Law moms.
1: No, it's just like her friends from law school who had babies before her, one of them made a spreadsheet and then the, like just passes it amazing. around now. And then my sister's like, you know, loves a good spreadsheet, added to it, added all her friends input. It's very funny. So now it's expanded to actually Columbia undergrad as well.
2: How did we go, oh. how did we go from, you know, get child away from wolf to put child in $1,300 stroller like, actually, in like
0: three generations? Like that's it. I have a story that – a stroller story of my own. Uh, when we were expecting Rebecca, so this is going back over 10 years now. That um, was like amateur hour. Amateur. Like we had no idea what we were doing, right? Um, this is Mark 1.0 or 1.1. Um, We were sitting on the sofa one night. I think we were watching an episode of 24 or something and the kind of show you don't watch after you have kids. Just to relax. (laughs) Right, just to relax. And sit at her laptop open and she – I noticed she – I looked over she had like 50 little windows open, which is not really how she rolls laptop-wise. And I noticed that she had – every single one of them was a different stroller brand. And I think she had created a spreadsheet and she was typing furiously fast. And finally she just said, I don't know what stroller to get. And – I realized all of a sudden there was this moment of clarity. And she'd been talking about strollers for weeks. And I realized, oh,
1: this is not actually, about the stroller.
0: This is not about the stroller. Like, Sid doesn't care about stuff at all. Like, she, her perseverating about a material acquisition, this is not about the acquisition. And I looked at her and I said, sweetie, I don't think it's the stroller that you're scared <laughs> of. <laughs> and and you and know it's that the it's like. It's a small
1: monster inside.
0: <laughs> so her eyes filled up with tears, and she said,
1: "I think you're right." And Aww. she just let me buy
0: the stroller. I took the stroller off her hands.
1: So. Wait, do you have one of those strollers that has like six kids in, involved? Like how how we have a double decker,
0: so we never had more than two. You can do three. You can do two underneath, one perched on top on a on a pole. Basically, we went like Phil on a and stick? Ted's kind of <laughs> yeah. yeah, kind of on a flag sitting flagpole sitting sort one, of. one kid's tied up on top on the mast,
1: the Romney. <laughs> We'll get to that later.
0: <laughs> the dog on the Irish cheddar on top of the car. All right, some news of the Jews, perhaps. Um, I'm just going to kick this off. This is a, you know, we aim to serve a little bit of service journalism here, New York Magazine style. Uh, ModernTribe.com is offering a $36,000 yarmulke called The Keepa, not a kippa. The Keepa. Uh, the at, it, it reads on the website: At thirty-six thousand dollars, the kipa is the most expensive yarmulke ever created. The handcrafted yarmica, made with conflict-free diamonds, white gold, and supple navy leather, definitely warrants the price tag. And it's like a Star of David on top in in diamonds.
2: I I, I love this. I, I can almost imagine like the the like the QVC ad.
1: Do you want everyone to know that not only are you Jewish, you're like kind of a dick? Right. <laughs> they do say it's like you know for like Drake or. You know, um, Andy Cohen, I think, is someone else they suggest this for. It's, so It's for the financially advantaged Jew? Yeah. I mean, I just would love to, like, I wonder which synagogue you'd see this at and, like, what you would say. <laughs> you'd be like, excuse me, is that double high thousand uh,
0: <laughs> worth of, of diamonds on your head? Speaking of quality Jews, Bethany Frankel,
1: she, who's she again? She's real housewives of something? She's real housewives of New York City, then went off of the show, then went back on. She's also the the— Purveyor of skinny girl margaritas, which I'm pretty sure is just like chemicals in a can.
2: She's the Bob Dylan of the Real Housewife franchise.
0: You know? On again, off again, poetic, mysterious. She's Jewish. She's Christian. She's Jewish. She's Christian. Uh, She flew to Puerto Rico with her own chartered plane of supplies to help people, which basically makes her a better human being than the president. Can She deserves a double high yarmulke is what she deserves.
2: I think we should outsource all of the federal government's work to the Real Housewife franchise because that would do an amazing work. <laughs> we would all be like fit and skinny, like a little bit bitchy, but awesome. No, it's
1: true. And and if you watch the show, which I'm not sure if you guys do, but like, you know, they're always like planning galas. They have real organizational right. skills. I mean, we can get women... them together and lead, you know, legions of of like aid workers, right? Like These women are, are
2: executives. Like that's what they do. They plan and they execute. And I actually they, they... don't
1: think they do the Melania like show up in stilettos. I think they nope. would wear like a cute, expensive, like wedge sneaker. That's right. You know, way nice. more practical, and
0: their husbands nice. in the chayamaca.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: the nice thing about the chayamaca is you—it's actually a great way to travel with lots of money across international That's borders. Right. You're, 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 only to take, you're only allowed to take so much cash oh. on an airplane, but who's going to question the chayamaca? <laughs> it's like—I mean, Puerto Rico, of course, being part of the United States, not necessary. But for the next international aid situation, housewife. Um, speaking of international situations, uh, six. Nobel laureates this year were Jews, I believe. I mean, these there are people who track these things. According, and, uh, according to the email you got from your crazy uncle. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you see, all the Jews win the Nobels and all the Nobels are Jews. Um, there's... Uh, one of them is Michael Rosbash, who teaches at Brandeis, and then there's the physicist Rainer Weiss of MIT. Both of them had parents who fled the Holocaust, thus – which gives me a great chance to bring up Robin Williams's famous line. He used to tell the story about being on this German TV show, and and the host asked him, you know, why is it that Germans are not so funny? And he said, did you ever think you killed all the funny people? <laughs> <laughs> and it's, and you know, <laughs> And what's the the best part of it is the follow up where the woman looked at him and didn't get the joke, and she said no, nine, like she, <laughs> thus proving his point. I was like, there you, there you go. Um, I also just want to give a shout out to apparently Jewish Nobel laureate Kip Thorne of Caltech. I mean, are we we're naming Jews Kip Thorne now? That's that's straight out of my prep school, circa nineteen ninety. That's amazing. I mean,
2: that's Kip Kip what Thorne. the Nobel is for. It's most awesome name, Nobel.
1: My favorite they give thing. Give those out. My, my favorite thing about um, Ross Bash, this scientist, he he said something. You know, he, uh, it is. At a prize in, like, 2013, he sort of explained his family's story a little bit. And he says this. And this is, like, this is the guy who wins the Nobel Prize. Like, this is a guy who does not mess around. He wrote, a one-sentence summary of these events is that after some years of trouble and considerable hard work, my parents establish a satisfactory, if not comfortable, life for themselves and their two children. Some years of trouble. Like, Whoa. wow, you are, like a, <laughs> like, a scientist. Like, you that that is just... Yeah. They even need citations some some on years that. of
0: discomfort, you know, between Maidanek and Treblinka, but you know they—they're fine now. Yeah, that's a guy who's North got county, his county. They're good. That's a guy who's got his eyes on the prize. He does. Yep, there were some troubles, and then we got to work.
2: So here's the thing. I also propose a new, a new. This is not like a law. It's like a bylaw. It's like a regulation. You are not allowed to boast and claim, oh, did you see how many Jews won the Nobel? Unless you could actually explain in two sentences what the fuck it is that they do.
1: Look, they had some considerable <laughs> trouble. And then after that, they <laughs> had right. a relatively comfortable discovery. I get no doubt but I get on the head. Our gentile this week is Tom Nichols. He's a professor at the U.S. Naval War College. Um, he specializes in Russia and the former Soviet Union. He's written a bunch of books. His latest is called The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. He's also a five-time undefeated Jeopardy champion. Welcome, Tom.
0: Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. And has a and has a very gentile name. I mean, we never we always have to note. If you've got a guy named Tom Nichols, yeah. tom you're you're not a Jew well, we picked it up at Ellis Island I think, <laughs> I think precisely on those criteria so here
2: here's here's my first question uh is a five time jeopardy champion is this like the equivalent of a four star
3: general like is there a hierarchy <laughs> well, in the they, jeopardy community there well n- uh, yes, I was actually one of the t- until the 90s until uh, you know they opened it up because in my day this is where I hitch my pants up and say now kids in my day <laughs> uh, they made you uh, they made you retire after five. Uh, wow. But for a time, Wait, they I, don't do that anymore. No, you can play until oh. you're you're gorged on your uh, list. But I winnings. thought
0: Ken Jennings made that uh, problematic because he was there for eight months.
3: No, nope, they still do it. There's some guy on right now, I think, who's like rocking the house and taking a the bartender. I uh, can't yeah, some Austin, Austin. Yes. No, they they retired us. But f- until that period was done, I was one of the top 100 players of the game. Did you get leave from the military to go on the game show? I'm a civilian, um, and thank you for opening that door, because I actually am not in the military, and I should also add, nothing I say here reflects the views of the United <laughs> States <laughs> government. Uh, or Jeopardy, uh, or, Jeopardy uh, or Harvard Extension School. Where right, because by teach. the way,
2: the United States government these days enjoys such a pristine you know, reputation that really we,
3: we wouldn't want to you know,
2: tarnish well, uh, it. Would we? <laughs> in,
3: in all administrations, I always point out, I don't speak for the government. Um, but uh, no, I was actually a young professor at Dartmouth College in those days. And, uh, a moment came after the game that took me down a peg for the rest of my life because, uh, I was on jeopardy. I won. I was also a young professor. I had my first teaching gig at an Ivy league school. I had my first book out. I thought I was just, you know, the cats PJs. And one of my students walks up to me and he says, I saw you on jeopardy. And I said, yeah, what'd you think? And he said, professor Nichols, I had no idea you were so smart.
1: <laughs> oh like it took you being on a game show. For yeah, me I was really... like, and
3: I said to him, "I said you didn't think maybe the the you know the Ivy teaching job or the book or." Nope. Uh, and he just kind of shook his nope. head. And he said, "You know what I mean." Oh.
2: So speaking nope. of, of being smart and smart people, um, y- y- you wrote an amazing book, um, which I think will prove it's one of these books that is going to prove to be. Kind of way more prescient than than you had hoped it would be because sadly right because because the premise is terrifying, right The premise is I mean it's called
1: the death of expertise right like, that that's real intense Living
2: in a time in which not only do people not know anything they're they're sort of giddy about that fact. so they're proud of it. describe describe that horrible situation and, and how we got here.
3: Well, it's always been the case, especially in American culture, that people don't like eggheads. Um, you know, I, t- <laughs> I tell a story in the book Th- this actually happened when I was teaching up at Dartmouth. I'm actually from Western Massachusetts and I grew up in a fa- uh, uh, where Chicopee.
0: Ah. I'm from Springfield. Dude. Get out. I took my my driver's test at the Chicopee DMV because it was easier. (laughs) Because you guys are
3: not as smart. (laughs) (laughs) Basically. Uh, Were you you on your way to the kielbasa festival? Absolutely. And then the big E. And then the big E.
0: To rope some cows. All right. Back back to death of expertise. Just had to have
3: that moment Um, there. Well, since you know Chicopee, my brother ran a bar there. And to say that it was a bar is really a compliment. It was more like a joint. Yeah. And, uh, so I used to hang out with my brother. I'd come down from Dartmouth and I'd drive down and go see my family and I'd hang out in the bar. And one night I'd leave and, uh, a guy in the bar turns to my brother and he says, so, uh, your brother's a professor, huh? And my brother says, yeah. And he says, huh, seems like a good guy anyway. Now that's really common that's a part that's a normal part of American culture this distrust of intellectuals and pinheads that's actually even a positive part of our culture because we you know we don't come from Europe we don't call people hair doctor professor and all that that academic rank stuff on the other hand, what's happened now is that people are positively um not just distrustful of experts, but believe they're smarter than experts. In other words, there's this incredible injection of narcissism into this now that says, you're not the boss of me. I'm smart enough to know about vaccines. I can read a medical journal article, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, and know whether or not this is real. And, and it's, and it's bleeding down into everything. I spoke to, when I wrote the book, I was talking to doctors, teachers, uh, engineers, you name it. But I was also talking to people like photographers and electricians and plumbers who, who all said, oh, my God, if I have one more guy, you know, while I'm wiring a house standing over me saying, so uh, what are you using there? Uh, you know, 220, 221, you know, the Mr. Mom, right? <laughs> 221, whatever it takes.
2: Is that the Internet? Is that the source. Yeah, it's YouTube, right? right? It's YouTube. In the book, it's
3: YouTube videos. In the book, I attribute it to several things, all of which are part of this underlying growth of narcissism in American society. Uh, but the other influences are, uh, yes, the Internet. And I'll talk about that in a second because everybody, that's the go-to. Everybody says, well, it's the Internet. But it's not. This predates the Internet, uh, I would say, going back to the 70s and the 80s. One is education. We now have a very therapeutic model of education, which is we don't really care whether the students are learning critical thinking and, you know, kind of going through their paces to become lifelong learners. We care about whether they're happy. We care about whether they're (laughs) feeling fulfilled. There's no such thing as a really wrong answer. I mean, let's face it. The most common grade in American universities is an A. Mm -hmm. Uh, well that's, you know, I mean, Lake Wobegon is one thing, Lake, what the hell is going on yeah. is a totally another. I mean, the world is not full of a students. Um, the media pay, uh, play a big part in this because now the media are all segmented. You can spend all day getting your news and never encounter a view you disagree with. You can go anywhere. You don't read a newspaper anymore, right? I, I actually made the mistake. I teach undergraduates at night, and I made I made reference to an above-the-fold story in the newspaper, and the students all looked at me, and <laughs> I, I said... Above the Ab- what? Above the what? Is that a and, website? And, and, I, and I said, uh, well, okay, there was once a time when papers were made of trees, um, and... Uh, Everything in air quotes, I went, newspapers! Newspaper, trees. News uh, paper. Printed with lasers. Uh, and, uh, you know... Uh so they didn't really understand that a newspaper has a way of signaling what's important to you. And w- what, what you realize is that people don't read a newspaper. They search for stuff they already want to hear about. They don't. Uh, it's like reading a book by starting with the index and seeing if your name's in it, which I've never done, by the way.
0: No, none of us <laughs> has
3: ever done that. Yeah. Uh, and finally, of course, the internet. Then, then it really is the internet because it's the magic answer box that everybody carries in their pocket that produces the illusion of being informed, Actually knowing something. Yes. Right.
2: Now, in, in in the book, one of the things that that I that I liked a lot about it is that y- you never conflate you know credentials with actual expertise, mm-hmm. and and it seems to be a distinction that many fail to make. So, h- how do we get to real expertise if so much of our educational system is not necessarily geared towards it. Who are the classes that we still trust? How do we get that infrastructure up again?
3: Well, you know, part of the problem about credentials is that people now both resent them uh, and don't take them seriously. Um, so, someone the way you think you're smart because you have a PhD. Uh, and I'm like, well, yeah, I think, you know, I think that's <laughs> but on the other hand, the, the next comeback is, well, you know, a lot of people have PhDs. Well, I can't deny that either mm-hmm. anymore. Um, this democratization of education has been lethal because it's brought um, it's it's caused degree inflation that, uh, you know, bachelor's degrees in a lot of schools. And I, I, I always make it a point to say, I think American education is still the best in the world. Um, college American universities are still the best. But There's a huge stratum of American universities that are doing nothing but filling in as replacement high schools now. Yeah. Uh, Which means that in order to show some college level achievement, people get master's degrees. Uh, And there's been a proliferation of that. And of course, all this is very expensive and it's very time consuming and it means people defer growing up and getting married and having children and adulting. Um, And I think it's just an, it's needless. Uh, So uh, how do you replace an infrastructure? Well, part of it is longevity. I think, Um, you know, expertise. I actually talk in the book about what constitutes an expert. Uh, You know, dilettantes don't last very long in any field. Uh, There's more than just credentialing. There's peer review. Including maybe, you know, being president. But we'll talk about that in a moment. Well, you know, one thing that the president and others, like the Brexiteers, have done is to conflate the word expert with the word elite, which is wrong. Um, I was an advisor to a U.S. senator some years ago. I was an expert. He was elite. Yeah, I was not the decision maker. So uh, I, I think part of it is to reestablish this notion that uh, there are there are things that are true. There are things that are false. There are areas that require expertise that you should rely on other people for. But that doesn't. But we have to get our egos out of the way because I think partly what what a lot of this rejection of expertise boils down to is a national temper tantrum of saying you're not the boss of me. That when a doctor says, "Look, you, you got to you know you got to vaccinate your kid because we don't want to have whooping cough come back," and parents say, "I don't like needles. You're not the boss of me." Uh, you know, it's um, it really is a kind of again uh, rooted in an excessive, and this is where it comes into contact with democracy, with a radical notion of democracy that is really uh, mobocracy rather than kind of the considered and thoughtful republic upon which the American experiment was founded. So th- I think this has really scrambled the partisan political situation, because there's really two parties now. There's the party of people who accept facts, and then there's kind of everybody else. And that that party of everybody else, as much as people want to associate it with Trumpism, uh, that really does cut across parties as well. I mean, there are people on the left where I have these completely hallucinatory uh, discussions about things where, you know, again, it's well, what I believe is what I believe. So I, I actually think the new cleavage in America is kind of between knowers and wishers or knowers and believers rather than believers. left and right. Believe, yeah. <laughs>
2: But what about, you know, sometimes you look at groups of experts and as much as I kind of want to uh, assign myself to one of these groups, um, you look at groups of experts and you see that they're just as susceptible as anyone else to these kind of, you know, bouts of group thing to like really, really short sightedness. You saw this with people prognosticating Brexit, prognosticating the election and being, you know, 100 percent wrong just because kind of like some sort of ideological you know, willful blindness. How do we how do we explain that, and how do we treat that?
3: Well, experts. There's a whole chapter in the book called "When Experts Are Wrong." Uh, including not just when they are wrong out of good faith, but when they are, oh, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for, lying, yeah. uh, fraud. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, that's always a hazard. You, you could run into a doctor who's going to kill you. Uh, you could run into a dentist who's going to disfigure you. You could run across a lawyer who's going to put you in jail. Uh, but the, but the, as I tell people, experts aren't always right. They're just more likely to be right than you are. And if they're wrong, they're more capable learning from being wrong. Um, I think one problem here is, of course, the public judges us on predictive ability, which is the weakest part of any sort of uh, right. expertise. I mean, it's we're explainers. Now, scientists say, no, we have to do experiments to predict. But still, if you could predict every experiment, you wouldn't run them, because you learn from when they fail. Uh, the other thing, and, and I'll put in one last plug for experts here, is to say, uh, people treat expert failure like plane crashes. They're spectacular. It terrifies them. They focus on it to, you know, uh, I in the book, I take that bit from Rain Man, the movie Rain Man, mm-hmm. where the autistic character won't fly because he can remember every single crash that ever happened. Right. But people don't remember billions and billions and billions of miles safely traveled. The same people who say, I, you know, the pilot could be drunk or the pilot could be stupid and pilots don't know what they're doing, are, are saying that while they're texting while driving. Right. Yeah. You know, because they have no sense of risk because I'm smart and I'm in control. Exactly. So,
1: so Tom, you came with a a gentilic question for us.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. Um... The, uh, the the question I had, uh, because I, I had to think about this now, you know, especially if you live in the Northeast, well, do you want to ask about Jewish food? No, I've eaten plenty of it. Uh, you know, but the one question I always had is about the way that groups treat each other in an undifferentiated way. So, you know, Jews are like this, Christians are like that, Gentiles are like this. So my question was, is there a group with whom Jews outside of Judaism or Either ethnically or religiously, feel more comfortable. Is there a Gentile group who say these are guys? These are the guys we like to hang out with. And the example I, I brought up when talking about it with your producer was, uh, I'm Greek Orthodox. People are always surprised to find out. They say, "Well, who's most like you in the world? The Catholics, right?" And we say, "No. Yeah. We have a lot of we have a lot of beefs with the Catholics. Um, the Anglicans. Yeah." which is a really strange thing. No one ever thinks to put the Orthodox, Greek Orthodox and the Anglicans together, but there's actually a lot of history. The greatest history of the Orthodox church was written by an Anglican convert uh, back in the 20th century. So uh, that kind of sparked the, the question in my head. Is there an equivalent group w- outside of your community where you'd say, we're very comfortable with that group? Would that's they a, get us? That's
2: a great question. I'll, Such I'll, a good question. I'll take yeah. a first
3: stab. Yep. Uh, for me, it's Armenians.
2: Um, uh, for whom I, I make almost no differentiation. I mean, the, uh, upon my first contact with Armenians, like, oh my god, hi Mishpocha, you know, hi family. <laughs> it's like, oh, you have a
1: Holocaust. You're small and tribal, and you make good brandy. <laughs> like, hey, like we're brothers. <laughs> For me, I mean, personally, it's so funny. Like you say, you're Greek Orthodox. I have a best friend from college who is Greek Orthodox, and I've always found it very easy because like the cultural aspect is very similar. So for me, I'm like, yeah, I get it. You got, you know, you have your special name for your grandmother. You like have a specific type of food you eat. Like to me, I could more seamlessly. We're
3: Mediterranean. Yeah, like, yeah,
1: you know. And so in addition to Irene, my cousin married a Greek woman who I love so much. And it feels like, I don't know, for me the 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 religions that have cultural aspects sort of bound up in them um i find very sort of it's easier as opposed to catholicism which to me i'm like i don't i don't get like it's hard to find an inroad there,
3: because... Well, it is true, Greek Orthodoxy, I mean, it, it's, uh, although, you know, it's interesting, sometimes when I'm a, speaking to um, European audiences, I point out that I'm Eastern Orthodox, and they say, well, you're a Russian. I said, no, the Orthodox Church, Armenians, you know, others, uh, but it is true that the, that Greek Orthodoxy, I, I had a um, uh, when I was in college, I had a very serious relationship with a young Jewish lady. Uh, she came to church with me one time, and you know we were doing the smells and the bells and the droning and the chanting. She leans over halfway through the service, says, "Sounds like my guys." Huh? Uh, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <not right. laughs> and I said, she "Yeah, was every oh, bit as know, bored said, as we, we
0: stole it from somewhere, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, it's, first of all, I have to say to, to Stephanie, you know, who's whose dear friend, Irene, we all know. I mean, Irene is basically Jewish. I oh mean, yeah, you, couldn't, Jewish. You, couldn't, you couldn't be more right. I mean, she reads as Jewish and, you know, I've got good Judar. And if I met her, you know, uh, without, you know, knowing um, and I, that's, of course, the highest of compliments. Um, but, I mean, I, I hate to sound like a broken record, but my mind did go to the Greeks. And I've never had personally um, any close – I mean, I'm sure I've had friends with some Greek ancestry, but, but none but of your it's best friends bro- are Greek. It, none of my best friends are Greek, but my brother in college, his two of his five best friends, I would say, were Anthony Philippakis and Anthony Kyriakakis. And um, you made and, that up. I, no, no, <laughs> in I a re- random name generator right now. <laughs> I really. Here's the thing, guys. I really didn't. <laughs> like, it was, you know, Dan Dan hung with the Anthony's a lot, and. Um, you know, and one of them was much more. His his family is much closer to to immigration to Greece than the other, whose family I think had been here longer. But um, you know, I hung with those guys a lot, and and I th- so it's something I thought about in the years thereafter. It just kind of, you know, I, I had that question in my own mind, and you know, you notice there there are first of all, you're talking about a people who even the ones who are ostensibly religious are often pretty funny and casual about it. There's not a kind of oh, yeah. reverence for the clergy that you'll see in some in some traditions. Um.
3: It was a shock to uh, me to read Zorba the Greek, and uh, you know, a- as kind of part of my own cultural education, and realize that. You know, wow! Greeks in America are a lot more pious than yeah. you know yeah. Greeks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so that's number one. Number two, it, intense pressure to marry within within the faith, oh. and it's really it's really more within the culture. I mean, Greek Americans, even ones who aren't particularly church going, expect their kids will ma- marry fellow Greek Americans very often, which is really interesting.
3: My, my um, father put quite. My, interestingly enough, my father whose first marriage was to a Polish-American woman, uh, and then he married my mother years later, who was Irish-American, but she converted to Orthodoxy, Greek Orthodoxy. Uh, And yet, there was intense pressure from my father to marry a, a Greek woman. And I finally just turned to him and I said, like you did and twice. <laughs> and and I said, like my brother who married the Irish girl did or my other brother who married the Protestant did. Right. And finally, he he just was quiet for a moment. He said, you know, just because the rest of us were stupid doesn't mean you have to be. <laughs> so did you? Yeah. I've been married twice and in neither case. So I Ah, see that was your mistake. That was, uh, but you know, (laughs) for the third time you need a uh, Greek woman, Tom. Well, And you know, we do accept uh, two divorces within the Greek church. So I still (laughs) got one. (laughs) Uh, So wait, when
1: you were dating the Jewish girl, was there like, this is when we get to ask Gentiles, like what people really think of Jews. Like was, were your parents, was there like a pressure? Like, Oh, don't date a Jewish girl. Do Um, date a Jewish girl.
3: But you know, here, here's the, the interesting moment because it was an intersection with Greeks now, this was not like dating wasps, right? You know, or coming from a wasp family, it was like, well, you know, not our people, the right. Hebrews, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Uh, this was actually, my mother loved her, but said, she's a wonderful girl. She's beautiful. She's, she's, you clearly love her. I just hope you don't marry her. Because, not because she was Jewish, but because I was Greek Orthodox. Right. It was the pressure to marry within, it, you know, it. And, of course, her family, her grandmother used to say, so he's a nice Greek yeah. boy. When does he convert? And everybody was really rooting for, all, for both of us to convert on both sides because nobody had an innate – I mean, it was actually a very heartbreaking situation because there was no innate uh, rejection from either side. The Jewish family did not reject the Greek boy. The Greek family did not reject the, the uh, Jewish girl. But it was, which one of you will convert because the religious, you know, line has to go on. And we, you know, eventually it just didn't work. And and my priest is a wonderful guy since retired. Um, I think by the standards of Greek Orthodox, a very liberal, very forward looking priest. He, when he found out that was already he said, he just kind of went... You know, like, okay, so now I don't have to figure out what to do about this. Crisis averted. Yes, crisis averted. Exactly. (laughs) Remember that, you know, the most famous Greek Orthodox politician in America is technically not in communion with the church because he's married to a Jewish woman. Michael Dukakis. Dukakis. Michael Dukakis. Absolutely.
1: Tom, thank you so much uh, for being here. Tom's latest book is The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters.
3: Thank you so much. Wonderful to be with you.
1: No, no más All right, our Jewish guest this week is the one and only David Litt. He's the author of Thanks Obama, My Hopey Changey White House Years, uh, which is about uh his time as a speechwriter at in the Obama White House. He's now um a, Writer-producer for Funnier or Die in D.C. Welcome, David. Thank you. It's good to be here. Hi, David. So you and Liel actually have like been on the road together, swapping stories. Veterans of, of the moth. <laughs> yeah, I, I think on the road makes it seem
4: like we did some sort of Thelma and Louise yeah. type deal. Right. Uh, th- we, we did a show together. <laughs> Cocaine Where in the back of the bus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, this was, what was it, San Antonio? We both missed planes together. <laughs> yeah, that's right. At, so um, you guys were both on the moth. times. Yeah, we were we were both in the same show at the Moth, the storytelling show on NPR. Um, and David,
2: I, I can't even begin to describe what happened to that like thousand plus person arena when David told his story. It was like it was amazing to watch. Like at some point, wait, which story did he? I have read the
0: whole book. Which story them. did he tell?
4: I told the story about the time I had to sing the Golden Girls theme song to President
0: <laughs> Obama in the Oval Office. <laughs> My favorite moment in the book, I'll just we, – we can't not get to this, is that you – because I've been there. I've had to do this, but not with the president of the United States, is when you had to teach him how to say Chag Sameach for happy holidays. And and it sounds like he never really got it. This was for his Passover message that he was recording. And it sounds like he sort of basically at the end was like, yeah, uh, you know, Chag Sameach, whatever, peace out. Did he get it? Did he nail it? Uh, I wouldn't say he nailed it. He got close enough. Chag Sameach. Um, and, and I think it, a
4: lot of the book, I think, is the – experience of me saying i went to hebrew school for a long time and never quite knew why i did that and then certain things happened in the white house and i was like oh this was what all the hebrew school was for for such a time as this exactly this was probably what they had in mind they were like one day you will have to teach the president to do like a sound (laughs) (laughs) and when that happens you're going to be glad that you did all this hebrew school and so um I, i mean to to be fair that is not a sound that makes that's easy if you didn't grow up sort of doing it or hearing it if you didn't grow up summoning camels to your to your herd <laughs> right yeah. exactly it's, no
0: it's 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 a tough sound
4: well what's funny to me is the uh i i don't know if everybody is as picky about pronunciation but just judging from my family my my small uh sample size of my family people were incredibly demanding of president obama's pronunciation of hebrew where <laughs> th- what i don't write about in the book was so we worked for a while to to get the chag Sameach right And we came close. And then the first thing that all of my family members said was not like, wow, you wrote a video for the president. That was so cool. It was like, I uh, didn't really do so good with the Hac huh? <laughs> I was like, Come on. like he's not Jewish. This isn't his. He doesn't speak this language. But you're like, what is wrong like, with you're like, you? Why people? is this a requirement?
1: But actually, that wasn't the only issue with the speech. Right? He actually rewrote one of the lines in the Passover address. He
4: did. Yes. Yeah. So I had in that speech or in that that video, I had written um, in every generation there are those who have tried to destroy the Jewish people, sort of cribbing from the Haggadah. Uh, you know, a little dark. Um, and I should have known that that was sort of, he was comfortable saying something like that, but that kind of doom and gloom was not his style. And so he read it and was like, wait a second, what's, what's going on here? Like, isn't this, isn't this a little depressing? And um, so we, we tried to explain, cause he was like, the whole thing is uh, everyone's out. Uh, everyone's trying to kill us. Let's have some matzah. And we were like, <laughs> like, well, like kinda, lo- yeah, welcome. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit like that actually is a pretty good summary of, of a lot of Jewish history. But um, by that point, I think he was just like, no, 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 no. I'm going to I'm going to redo this a little bit. So he took the uh, he, he asked for a pen, which he, and this never happened, at least to me any other time. But he was like, some, just someone give me a pen. And he rewrote it. And I think he, he kept the idea, but he changed it to, you know, there are those who have targeted the Jewish people or something like that. A little less uh, apocalyptic, um, you know, and still still had some matzah in in the general framework of things so not only are you the jewish
2: people's emissary uh in the white house you are the administration's emissary in your family which i imagine is actually way more difficult than annoying right because are you blamed for like the iran deal and stuff around dinner tables like what is a, their level of expectation when you come home for shabbat dinner
4: well um so like, tell the president that he should really outlaw cheese like stuff like that that sort of thing definitely happens not not cheese specifically yeah. but you know, dairy more broadly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, the the nice thing about my job in the White House was that we had, there were actually emissaries to the Jewish community and also sort of people who were there to speak for the Jewish community in the White House. And I was not one of those. I was writing speeches. So I didn't have that responsibility. Um, absolutely. One of the things about writing Uh, speeches for the president or doing any job in the white house is that your family immediately assumes you have direct access to the leader of the free world and so whenever you want oh yeah Yeah. i mean i i would get emails from my uh from my grandpa um and like late at night and he'd be like well like many older people i couldn't sleep so here's my plan for a national network of water (laughs) pipelines to to carry because he would say, you know, some areas have drought and some areas are flooded. So what if we built pipelines next to the highways? And I actually thought it was very endearing. Like there was something very hopeful about the idea that somebody could just say, like, you know, I'm a citizen. I, you know, I know somebody. Maybe I maybe this will happen. Maybe this then, you know, the Irving oh, Irvingland National Network of Water Pipelines will one day exist. And but he would. He, I tried to explain like Grandpa. I can't just walk into the president's office and say. By the way, could we do a multi-trillion-dollar infrastructure project? <laughs> like Zadie called. Yeah, I think that's a good idea, and he has a funding mechanism. Um, and but it, it just it didn't compute. Like he'd be like, "Well, could you at least show it to your people?" And I was like, "I don't have people. Like I am I am somebody's people." <laughs>
2: <laughs> now, he, here's kind of like something that that always when when i was reading the book kind of like was it back of my mind on some level it's like this great big dream job but another like you're the kid who started off by, you know, instead of drinking, going to do stand up and like being the funny writer. And then all of a sudden you come into a job where the expectation is, yeah, you should be funny. You should tell jokes. But at the same time, the person telling the jokes is the commander in chief. And so you want to be really super, really careful that you don't, you know, do any damage or get anything wrong. How do you strike that balance? Is it not like totally paralyze you that the wrong word, the wrong punchline may be funny, but like totally spark some sort of diplomatic incident?
4: Well, what we tried to do pretty carefully was was recognize that when you're writing jokes for a president, a lot of the joke is that it's the president telling a joke. Right. So, right. Like the one I always use is in 2013, President Obama said uh, all the Republicans agree they need to do a better job reaching out to minorities. This was a a simpler time, but he said they all need to do a better job reaching out to minorities. Call me self-centered, but I could think of one minority that could start with um, (laughs) which when I say it is like eh but for him to say that was going farther than he had gone before so some of some of it's just kind of always keeping in mind what you're saying is the great like, joke he's the president you know and he's going to be the president the the day after the joke and that he was the president the day before the joke and this is not the most important thing that he has to do so we didn't joke about let's say national security for that reason
1: so these are at the white house correspondents dinners these are not like in random speeches oh yeah that would be
4: <laughs> weird yeah there probably is some context that's useful <laughs> um yeah so these would be at the white house correspondents dinner so in addition to some of most of the year, I would spend doing serious speeches, and then um, one month out of the year, I would kind of switch over and do jokes for the White House Correspondence Center. Uh, although one year in 2014, I had there um, President Obama went to address Steven Spielberg's found uh, the Shoah Foundation, um, uh, ho- you know, talking about Holocaust remembrance and, and you know how we think about uh, never again and never forget. And then also the White House Correspondence Center was the week before. So I was doing both speeches simultaneously. And that was really weird.
1: Because you're like, I can't put one speech. Like, you have to make sure to keep them separate.
4: Yeah. In the sitcom version of my life, I totally put, like, the yeah. Holocaust memorial speech where the joke should have been. And then, the you know, the president got up and to talk about remembering the Holocaust and, like, tells a bunch of jokes. But thankfully, that did not happen. Knock, knock. Who's there? The Holocaust. The Holocaust. Who? You said you'd never heard <laughs>
0: You have to tell everyone the joke that Nussbaum wrote, Jeff Nussbaum, which which Obama never used, which was so funny. (laughs) So the joke, really quickly. So Vice President Biden said,
4: you know, the president has a big stick talking about foreign policy, but making a gesture that did not look like a foreign policy gesture. (laughs) And uh, so the joke was, um, you know, my vice president's out there talking about my big stick. Let's just put it this way. Dreams aren't the only thing I got from my father. (laughs) And and we didn't think that that was ever going to end up in the speech. But there was kind of this point where we're like, that is such a good joke. And it's so clearly not appropriate for the president to say out loud that we just have to run it by him. And so uh, he he enjoyed it, although it was very clear that it was never going in there.
1: David Lit, thank you so much for being here. The book is "Thanks, Obama: My Hopey Changey White House Years." It is bizarre to read it in like the Trump era, Yes when the things that were book, inappropriate though. then are just like first as the joke, but yeah, then as policy. So it's a nice like TVT to a simpler, simpler time. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Live show. Guys, this is the last warning you're going to get from us, the last promise, uh, shall we say. October 25th, we're back at the JCC Manhattan. Tickets are on sale now. Our guests are Kobe LeBee from Transparent and A.J. Jacobs, who has his new book out about DNA and DNA testing. And we are actually going to talk about our own DNA tests. We're going to reveal our own uh, ancestry. Just how Jewish are we? We're going to have the big reveal. Um, anyway, bring your friends. Uh, October 25th, jccmanhattan.org is where you get tickets.
1: Mazel Tov, Stephanie! What do you got? I actually have a, like I have a, a bunch to get through. Um, this is a big week for for everyone. I have from friend of the show Miriam Cruel. We have a Mazel Tov to Rebecca Schmierer and Aaron Springit on their engagement. Schmierer, what? I just Schmierer, Schmierer, Oh yeah it's a cool name. Um, I don't know what their hashtag will be, but it'll be something good, some combo of those last names. Um, I also want to shout out Kevin Brown and Kate Le- Levin, who um, just got engaged as well. And, you know, my my new sister-in-law, Sarah Cohen, ran her first half marathon this past weekend, and I'm super proud of her. Most importantly, though, it's Grandpa Al's birthday this week.
2: Oh, muzzle
0: <sighs> He turns 86 Al. on
1: October 22nd, and I am so excited. I got to pop that card in the mail so it gets there on time. But, you know, love that guy. I wish he could be my Grandpa Al.
0: So speaking
2: of uh, of marathons, my my Mazaltov is to Peter Chacha, the president of New York Roadrunners and uh the person who is dealing, handling, making sure that the marathon uh goes off without a hitch twenty days exactly from today. Uh and what a what a pleasure.
0: Uh, My shout-out is – I have a shout-out and then a mazel tov. My my shout-out is to Miriam Lichtenberg who is up at Barnard and is recruiting friends to listen. She's a new fan and a huge supporter and her letter just meant a lot to us this week. Uh, And then a big mazel tov to Paul Miller who has been a math teacher at Nehr Israel in Baltimore for 78 years. Um, his granddaughter writes that he holds the American record for the most consecutive years teaching. He's taught children and grandchildren of his first students. He was inducted into National Teachers Hall of Fame. And on Tuesday, he turned 101. Aww, so happy wow. birthday, Paul most Miller. Of. Keep it up. And uh, we we'll, we'll hope, hope to be wishing you a happy birthday next year, too. Wait, 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 wait. If you're the kind of person who skips past the closing credits, don't. Because this week, there are a lot of cool shout-outs embedded in those closing credits. All right, ready? All right, here we go. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com, as you know. We do read our mail, and we read a lot of it on the air. Follow Stephanie on Instagram at sbutnick. We are on Facebook a lot, so follow Tablet Magazine there. This week, our show was produced by Shira Talushkin with help from Julia Frakes. Our artwork is by Esther Wardeker Our show is edited by Noah Levinson. Our music is by Golem, And rabbinic supervision this week by all of the great pulpit rabbis, those rabbis who deliver those kick-ass sermons whom you wrote in to tell us about. For example... Rabbi Michael Bernstein, Rabbi Noah Arno, Rabbi Scott Schaffron, Rabbi Dusty Class, Rabbi Aaron Brusso in Mount Kisco, Rabbi Stephanie Colon, Rabbi Shira Milgram, Rabbi Tom Weiner, Rabbi David Stern, Rabbi Lawrence Siebert, Rabbi David Ellenson, and Rabbi Molly Kane. Kosher Slaughtering This Week by Little Bob Corker. We record at Argo Studios, which is sick of escargot jokes, and we're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends.